Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 67, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, just before we get into this week's show and we talk about what we've got coming up, we just want to take a couple of seconds, just a quick time out to show the people who support this show week in, week out, a little bit of love. Totally, because you know, you donators, you're amazing because you help us get to events, you help us do the subscription for the SoundCloud and to get amazing guests. Obviously doing the show week in, week out, we do have costs, website subscriptions, all of that kind of thing. And it's thanks to people who take the time and find it in their hearts to click on our website, theretrohour.com, on that little PayPal link and donate a couple of quid into the cause. I mean, we love doing this show anyway, but it is kind of nice if we don't have to pay for the entire thing out of our own pockets, I've got to say. So making the uh, Retro Hour Hall of Fame this week, we want to say a massive thank you to Todd Sarney. Ross Burnett, Imran Chowdhury, and Colin Walker, who've all made donations to the running of the show this week. If you'd like to do the same, all you've got to do is click that PayPal link at theretrohour.com. Now, we have got an amazing show lined up this week. Whether you listen to the show every week, whether you're a supporter, maybe you're a new listener, the way we do it is Ravi and I run through all the big headlines that have been making the world of retro. And then, in the second half of the show, we welcome on a veteran of the video games industry. And this week, if you love adventure games... Do not turn off this show. Oh my God, no. Because at the moment we know Fimbleweed Park is doing massively well and there's an absolute classic called Loom, which is from LucasArts. And we have the guy who created Loom. Now, Brian Moriarty, who is he's, he's actually a professor. He does like, you know, video game design, um, you know, teaches students that, he also does lectures from time to time. But really, you know, He's got such an interesting background, starting from the earliest days in home computers. And obviously he worked at Infocom, you know, the company that brought us games like Zork and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And then after that, he went to work for uh, Lucasfilm Games, like LucasArts, they were. Yeah, and the he, uh, Skywalker Ranch, wasn't he? Well, he was in both of these companies at the yeah. most exciting times at their peak. So um, he's going to tell us stories, actually, of uh, celebrity sightings at the Skywalker Ranch, which will blow your mind. And also, uh, you know, kind of any real planned sequel to Loom and and will there be a new one? Yeah, because everything's getting like HD remasters at the moment. Will we ever get an updated version of Loom or a sequel? Who knows? We'll find out in just a bit. Brian Moriarty, the creator of Loom, is our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast this week. And also, there is something very big happening next weekend and this is actually your last chance If you want to put a little vote in for um, us guys to go and have a little bit of a party in London and uh, maybe pop a bottle of champagne at the British Podcast Awards. Yes, this is the first ever British Podcast Awards that's coming up and you've got a chance to vote for us in the Public Choice category, isn't it? Listener's Choice Awards, Listener's yeah. Choice, Which um, we're in for at the moment, but obviously as many votes that we get uh, will help us get in there. I think they're doing like a top 10, I've heard. So like we said you know, in previous weeks, if everyone is listening to this right now, went to theretrohour.com forward slash vote and typed in the Retro Hour podcast, I reckon we'd stand a pretty good chance. Yeah, we might scrape in (laughs) nine or something. (laughs) Either way, we're going to have a bit of a party. Yeah, um, yeah, we're going to have a laugh in London. So Going to be happening next weekend. Yeah, Yeah, I can't wait. Check the Instagram for drunken pictures. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not looking forward to Sunday morning. No no pictures then. (laughs) Pre-record the show. Now, uh, you didn't mention Instagram. I think our follow account's uh, getting up there as well. You've been busy, actually. You've uh, you've set us up on another platform as well this week. Yeah, so Instagram's going well, and uh, you can follow us at Retro Hour UK and see all the kind of cool stuff we're posting in the week. But also, I thought, why not play games with everybody? Because on Steam at the moment, there are so many cool old-school retro titles. So I've created a Steam group, and, you know, it's kind of gathering momentum. So if you go to steamcommunity.com slash groups slash retro hour, and we could all kind of join in and then discuss, decide, oh, 
Should we play some games online or maybe use another platform? But it's a good meeting place to get all the old school gamers back together. See, I've used Steam off and on probably for about 10 years. But yeah. like, I'm more of a console gamer. So I've had a few requests, you know, since he set the group up. But I'm looking at my profile. I'm like, God, that's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've played like three H- games. Hardly any hours on it, yeah. Three games for like 20 minutes. Because but... I've been playing a lot of modern games on Steam. Mm-hmm. So there's been, you know, all your kind of modern stuff. But there's also a lot of retro titles, but a lot of new retro titles which are coming out. And at the moment, one in high in the charts is Fimbleweed Park. Now, obviously... We're going to be chatting about, you know, Lucasfilm games and LucasArts in just a bit with um, Brian Moriarty. But this is, for those that haven't heard about um, Thimbleweed Park, first of all, where have you been? Yeah, totally. <laughs> We've been covering this on the show for like months now. It did finally come out recently and it is the new adventure game from uh, Ron Gilbert of Monkey Island fame. And David Fox as well, who we had on the show talking about it. And he may come back and do a little uh, Thimbleweed Park update for us. So how many hours have you spent on that game over the Easter weekend? <laughs> Maybe 10 or 11 or 12, I'm not sure at the moment, but I'm only on to the third chapter. And it's really cool because they have kind of, they've got two modes. So they've got one game mode for noobs. And then you got, haven't been playing that one, No, you? no, no, for new users and stuff, but new people to adventure games. Then they've got the traditional hard one. And I tell you what, it's taken me back to when I was 13 year old. I've, I'm sitting there and I've spent half an hour looking for a coin. I've not done that on any game for so many years. And I've enjoyed it, you know, because the satisfaction of working out that clue and, you know, kind of actually using your brain in a game rather than just collecting objects or or going on quests that are already set. You're finding something and you're discovering stuff. And it's just fantastic. It's a really intelligent game. And it's very funny as well. There's no, the mic, totally. There's no, like, tutorials or hand-holding or that kind of thing? Not at all, no. Okay, and uh, you've just got to stop yourself from looking on online guides. That's the thing <laughs> these days, isn't it? Yeah. Back in the day, you had to wait for a magazine to come out to read the walkthroughs. But, but, but I tell you, the whole thing is just completely rampant with jokes. You know, they keep talking about 2017. And then they start saying, why are we talking about 2017? Oh, it's just a random date in the future we've chosen <laughs> to talk about. And, you know, they take the mick out of Sierra and, oh, it's just wonderful. Everybody should play it. A lot of that classic uh, Monkey Island humour, I guess, you know. Similar yeah, to that, yeah. It, yeah. But the thing is, also, you're playing five different characters. Mm-hmm. So you're swapping around. So you've got one person and you've got to use the other person to get one bit and then give it to another character. To So it's like uh, you have to really think how these objects can travel around and how you can solve these puzzles. Well, if you'd like to join our Steam community and uh, keep an eye on just how many hours Ravi is putting into Thimble Week Park <laughs> at the moment, uh, we'll pop that link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, obviously, the, um, the NES Classic... The uh, Mini Nairs, obviously we covered that before Christmas. Massive news that no one could get their hands on one. Yeah. It was like the hottest selling gadget at Christmas time, really, wasn't it? You know, everyone's like, Nintendo's flying Mac. off the shelves, yeah. Couldn't if, get them anywhere. Yeah. Well, it's dead now. I don't, I don't understand it. Why have they pulled this then, Dad? Because they're saying they discontinued it, yeah. Yeah, Nintendo, just a bit of a shock announcement, really. Um, this has been all over the bank holiday weekend. It kind of, you know, a few news websites, IGN, I think, broke the story first. Mm. That uh, For some reason, just Nintendo have announced that, you know, They've, they've released a statement saying, in April, there's going to be the final shipments of NES Minis. After that, they're not making any more. That's really weird, because it's, it's essentially an updated old-school NES, isn't it? Well, it's essentially, it's a system on a chip. It's really just a Raspberry Pi in a NES box, really. Yeah, but already some of them are getting up to, you know, around £210 and stuff. How much was it on release? It was well, like... meant to be $60 when it came out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, since this announcement, they've actually, they're selling for about $400 now on eBay. 
God, I, I, I don't know what the thought is. Obviously, I think Nintendo, maybe they may think we just got to focus on the Switch. That's what everyone seems to be saying. Every, every, all our eggs in one basket. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, but I think, I mean, that's what I'm reading most of all in the forums and, you know, discussion threads and that kind of thing. People saying, look, Nintendo got one product, they want to focus on that. And probably, you know, with the virtual console, they want to sell these games on there mm. rather than having what they say might be a competing bit of hardware. But I think they're different audiences. Totally. And I also hope that they do a SNES Mini or a N64 Mini, you know? That's the other rumour, that maybe they're gearing up to do something like that. Because I think the biggest mistake they made with the NES Mini was, you know, not being able to put any more titles onto it. For Mm. example, if it had a built-in, like, Wi-Fi chip and that connected to the virtual console store and you could buy games on there. Yeah. Surely that's got to be a lot more logical than, you know, trying to do it on the Switch. Maybe they'll release another one with a different set of games, but I wouldn't really see the point of that, you know? Unless it was a limited custom edition or something, you know, a Mario special. Well, I mean, they could essentially make this. It's kind of an evergreen product, really, isn't it? They could bring it out maybe every Christmas or, you know, seasonal yeah, kind yeah, of things. True, so actually. Yeah, true, actually. It is kind of sad to see the back of it. I mean, some people were saying, you know, they, they bought the um, Famicom Mini out, didn't they, in Japan? Mm. People are saying, oh, you can buy those online. So apparently the, you can get those really readily available in Japan. But they've announced, like, today they're killing that as well. So it's like, if that, <laughs> if that was your plan, then unlucky. Well, they seem to be uh, kind of knowing what they're doing at the moment with the Switch. It seems to be going all right, so we'll, well that, see. That's a rumour that's just dropped, actually, while we've been recording this show, that apparently there may be a Switch Mini on the way. Switch Mini? Yeah, oh, God. apparently. That's this the is just getting rumor. confusing, Dan. <laughs> so uh, they're really interminiaturising things at the moment, it yeah. seems, so uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. That, that seems a bit But what though. is it? It's always the Japanese cute... Uh, there's a certain word for it. Kawaii. Kawaii. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time. I don't know what quite the thinking's. I, I'd imagine a NES Mini was pretty much like, it just made money itself. You didn't have to do much yeah, with it. Yeah. It's, like... <laughs> it's probably pretty cheap to produce as well. Yeah, I imagine it was. But, you know, if we get any update on that story, of course, you'll be the first to know. Yeah. Now, obviously, last week, you know, this show, we had a massive Dizzy special. We had the Oliver Twins on. Uh, you were there at the Dizzy Day at the National Video Game Arcade. You were hanging out in the Oliver Twins' old bedroom, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we kind of had a great play with some of the games, and they also released a new Dizzy title there. They did, Mystery World Dizzy, that, of course, has been making all the headlines. Not one to overshadow the release of a previously unfound Dizzy game, but there has been another Dizzy game that's been released in the last week. Oh, cool. Which one's this? This is Crystal Kingdom Dizzy. Now, you might be thinking, I've played that before, surely, yeah, in, yeah. in the early Amiga, 90s. Yeah, I'd played that. Came yeah. on the Amiga, Atari ST, DOS, Nintendo, I think it was on the NES as well. Well, actually, a crew have backported Crystal Kingdom Dizzy to the ZX Spectrum. Ah, oh, nice. This, this looks quite a good port, actually. I'd say the only difference is the bar is at the bottom rather than the top. You know, the kind of score and all the yeah, energy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no, it looks, it looks really well done. And, you know, I think this was completely under the radar. It kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. It just got released. And, uh, of course, you know, a lot of people, I think, Dizzy feels a lot more at home on the spectrum to a lot of people. Mm, definitely, yeah. And with that Kempston, you know. The Kempston joystick and yeah. your uh, your primary colours and your black backgrounds and your colour clashes. <laughs> That's it. Maybe it got kind of pushed under all the Dizzy news at the moment, this release. Well, this is just yeah, a team that have got together. Um, there's actually a few of them who've made this game. And they kind of released it as an Easter gift, freely downloadable, and they can play either in an emulator or on a 128K Spectrum. So There's 136 reworked locations in it as well. Looks like they've done a good job on it, actually. I know, I know reading like, a few of the articles, apparently you know, the version that came out on the Amiga and uh, you know, the, the later platforms of Crystal Kingdom Dizzy, a lot of people said it didn't really look like a Dizzy game, but no. this one does. 
yeah, this one definitely does. I'm, I'm kind of loving the multicoloredness of it because you know usually Spectrum games aren't this colourful. There's a few, but yeah, they've learned some new tricks. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to download that ROM, of course, we'll stick that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, arcades are a topic that always get us very nostalgic. Oh, definitely. The smells, the kind of, you know, sounds of that time. I know you were a big arcade goer back in the day, weren't you? Yeah, I used to have my hair gel done and I'd go down and uh, try and get on the fruit machines, but be playing Crazy Taxi as well and, uh, what was it, the Time Crisis? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and House of the Dead. Well, going back a bit earlier than that, obviously, you imagine... (laughs) That's a bit late in the arcade world, isn't it? What do you imagine, 1982 in California? That's when I was born. Peak of the arcade scene, though. Oh, yeah. Just imagine what that was like, being there, 1982 in California. Well, it turns out a TV show um, called 30 Minutes actually did a segment on this, uh, you know, burgeoning arcade scene in California. It looks very stuffy, (laughs) as you'd expect, (laughs) like, you know, what is this new thing the children are playing with? Um, The bleeps and sounds. (laughs) It's exactly like that. And this is um, on a blog called the Arcade Blogger. And he's actually done, like, you know, a compendium of footage, like news coverage from the early 80s of arcades and, you know, them, them trying to explain it to middle America. Okay. What's really cool about this is, though, in the first clip, there's actually some footage of Atari Sunnyvale, California factory. Oh, wow. That's good. So that's even amazing to look at. But let me just play a little clip of it here. Prospect, Illinois, you're likely to find them at Mother's Pinball Arcade. With its low-level lighting and constant rock music, Mother's has become a kind of hangout for the local youth. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, how 80s is that? (laughs) But what they're talking about, I mean, when you get further into this, I want you to tell you a thing before, it's fascinating. It kind of changes into more of the parents and the authority figures being like, you know, video games are making our children into delinquents. It's all like that kind of approach later on. And it turns out, this is remarkable, that pinball was apparently outlawed in New York between, like, 1938 and 1975. It was illegal. What? Yeah. <laughs> pinball? Yeah, it was outlawed because people were spending too much time on it or it was corrupting the youth or people were wasting the money on it for some reason, it mentions in this report. That's really weird. That's really weird because I, ne- I don't know. I never saw pinball as that much of a bad thing. I know they had a, what is it, Tommy with the who and stuff. And yeah. There was all that kind of pinball culture and stuff, but... No, that's really odd. I always knew that there was violent games. I remember there was that death race, which was a really early one, where they were like, oh, you're running over pedestrians, yeah. and it was like a stick man. <laughs> like, how graphic. Yeah, how graphic. But the arcade cabinet was more graphic. Well, this goes into there a bit later on. They've actually got like you know a group of legislators and parents in New York who are together trying to you know pass laws, statewide laws, that are ban anyone under 18 going to an arcade. Oh, God. It's like... Busy bodies. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's not good. It's not just a new thing, you know, like Grand Theft Auto is corrupting my son. It's been going on since day one, really. Yeah. Um, which is pretty I remarkable. can imagine when books came out, you know, the first <laughs> binded books, and there'd be, you're not having these, these are corrupting you. <laughs> well, even, I mean, he's got some other clips in here of other, um, you know, reports from the time. There's, there's one actually that shows um, Midway's factory. But what's really interesting is, they interview a couple of the guys there at Midway, and they mention that they're currently working hard on a game called Toasters and Chainsaws. And everyone's like, you know, what's that game? Turns out they were trying to throw everyone off the sense that they lied about this fake game <laughs> in this news interview. And ever since then, it's been like, you know, whatever happened to that game, it never existed at all. We should ban this toasters and chainsaws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds brutal, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's a fascinating insight, you know, it's like the golden age of like early it's, arcades. It's really interesting because I remember all that kind of censorship stuff and stuff we had in England. What was it? Mary Whitehouse was the uh, lady that would go around and go, ban sex off television and ban all of this and 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it was, what was that game? Night Trap, wasn't it, on the Mega CD? That, that's Trap. the one, isn't it, that yeah. got like the age system brought in and everything? Yeah, yeah, that was massive. And it wasn't that bad, was it? It was just... Oh, awful. It was like a, a fantasy scene. I think it was just because there was girls in underwear. But it was no, <laughs> no worse than like any teen VH movie you'd see on VHS uh, Hell, or anything. Hellraiser or something was, you know, on the uh, video nasties. Remember all of them? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, so. yeah, I think Night Trap was essentially along, you know... In terms of goriness and fright, not even the scariest scream. You know, no, what I mean? no, it's like, well tame. You'd you get worse in the Sun newspaper, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> so, but yeah. Well, I was even reading something like uh, I've been looking through some early issues of Edge magazine that I found online the other day, and there's actually an article in there, The Independent, where they're talking about Sega World. You know when that launched, and yeah. uh, the Trocadero, talking about how that's going to you know make all our kids into mindless zombies, and they're going to spend all the money, and it's corrupting the youth of today, <laughs> playing Sonic the Hedgehog. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, so, yeah. It's yeah. always been around. It has always has been. But if you want to look at these, I mean, it's really, really interesting to uh, check out these videos from way back when. So I'll put those in our show notes this week as well. Yeah, interesting find there, Dan. Right, thank you for checking out episode number 67 of the Retro Hour podcast. Of course, we'll be out again next Friday. Kind of be our uh, British podcast towards pre-party, I suppose, won't it, next Friday's show? Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, thank you for checking out this week's show, guys. We'll see you again next Friday. And now... Let's do some reminiscing about classics like, you know, Loom, Infocom, LucasArts. These stories are incredible this week. Brian Moriarty is our special guest on this week's show. He's coming up for the next 45 minutes, and we'll catch you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we are so excited for this week's very special guest, the amazing Brian Moriarty. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Now, uh, let's go all the way back to the beginning of your story. I thought it might be quite interesting to find out where it all started for you. What was your first ever experience with a computer or gaming then? Oh, my first experience with a computer. Let's see. I'd have to go back to when I was in fifth grade. That would be in the mid-60s when I, I made a, a computer based on rolling marbles. Uh, it was based on a computer toy called Dr. Nim, which was one of the first uh, consumer computer toys. And it used ro- marbles rolling down little trays and uh, activating little mechanical flip-flops to do computations. And I kind of did a rip-off of that as a science fair project. Um, so that was kind of my first. And then in eighth grade, I made an electrical computer using knife switches and lights and batteries. So I've, I've been interested in computers since a very young age. But uh, just something about them always appealed to me. And then I finally got my hands on my first real compu- computer in high school. Uh, our math teacher brought in uh, a uh, a device. It was, I believe, it was from, was from Olivetti, and it wasn't really much more than a calculator, except that it could be programmed. It had these little magnetic cards you could stick in, and you could program it to do sequences of calculations. Uh, so it was kind of a very primitive computer, and you know, it just had an adding machine tape. It didn't have any disk drives or anything like that, but. This was a very exciting machine. He had it around for about a week. I guess they were trying to sell the school one. He, he didn't buy it, but we did get to play with it for a week. And that got me very excited to actually be able to think of you could program a thing and it would be remembered by the machine. And then I got my first hands on a real, real computer in 1978 when I graduated from college. One of my first jobs was at a Radio Shack store. Yeah. Uh, in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And the day I arrived was the day... They, they happened to bring in so, – so the, the Radio Shack was, of course, the first uh, company to come up with a consumer computer, the TRS-80 Model 1. Uh, the, the other computers that had been out up to that point were really hobbyist machines. You had to build them, right? Uh, but the TRS-80 
came completely assembled and ready to run. By 1978, they were finally beginning to ship them to the really lousy little stores like mine. Uh, so, so it just so happened that the day I started was the day we got our first and only model. We, they gave us one TRS-80 Model 1 to set up as a demonstration unit. Uh, in the unlikely event that someone wanted to buy one, we would have had to order it. Uh, so so, I, I imagine back then, you know, people looked at computers like the general public and they were like, what on earth would I want one of those for? What can I do with it? Well, that's exactly right. And I mean, this, this machine, uh, you know, this was a, a, a 64 column alphabetic display, all uppercase, black and white. Uh, it had uh, the only storage was a cassette, a cassette drive. Uh, and I know in the UK that was very popular. Uh, it didn't last long in America. We went to floppies very quickly. Uh, and then it had only, uh, I think, eight kilobytes of RAM, and it was a Z80 processor. You really couldn't do much of anything with it, really. So it was a hard sell. I mean, well, you know, there were the usual things that we would say, well, you could do, you could keep a recipe list on it. Well, who wants to pay $600 to keep <laughs> recipes? A file card counted that very well. But the one good argument you could make is that you could play games with it, uh, except the games were pretty lousy uh, at the time. Uh, but I got completely infatuated with this machine, and uh, and I started to learn how to program it, first in the built-in basic, uh, and then later I got a Z80 assembler manual because I found out that if you wrote an assembly, the code would run much, much faster. So you kind of started in the games industry because you were frustrated with the games that were out there. Well, not really. I mean, I didn't buy one of the machines in 1978. I wish I had. I'd probably be really wealthy now if I had gotten in that soon. Uh, but I didn't stay at Radio Shack very long, and I kind of didn't pay any attention to computers for a couple of years, which is kind of too bad. But they came to my attention again in the middle of 1981 when I was working at Bose Corporation, the loudspeaker company. Uh, and uh, I was a technical writer there, and one of the marketing people came in with an Atari 800 computer. And uh, he, he had it in there to use VisiCalc, which is the first uh, spreadsheet program. But during lunch break, he showed me a game called Star Raiders. And uh, there are many people here in America who would tell you that when they saw Star Raiders was when they decided they needed to be computer game writers. Mm -hmm. That was the game that did it. And it was the game that did it for me. And I immediately had to go out and get a machine that would play that game. And it was very expensive. Uh, the system I bought, which had, uh, let's see, 48K of RAM, a cassette, and a monitor, cost about $2,100. That would be about uh, five or six thousand dollars in today's due to inflation. So it was very expensive, uh, but I had to have it. I bought my first game, which happened to be a text adventure. It was one of the Scott Adams text adventures. I think it was number seven, called Strange Odyssey. And as I played this text adventure, there were two thoughts going through my mind. One is this is completely amazing, and the other one was this could be so much better because you know, the Scott Adams games are very important historically and you know very ahead of their time but but still pretty crude i mean they had a two-word parser and the responses tended to be very you know fragmentary and you know there were lots of bugs and the puzzles were kind of dope you had to type it in the exact uh, way didn't you you know if, if you the language is slightly different it wouldn't understand you oh right so yeah. usually there would be only one synonym for each object and you had to guess Basically, you had to play guess which verbs and which nouns <laughs> it would accept and understand, and usually there was only a very small number of those. So quite a bit of the game was just trying to guess guess the, the two words you needed to type and try to understand from the very minimal descriptions 
what might work. It was very difficult. But I played three or four of the Scott Adams games, including the two really hard ones, Savage Island, parts one and two. They were very difficult, but I did finish them. Uh, and, and I really enjoyed them, even though they were very frustrating. Uh, but then one day, I was uh, – I by that time, I had obtained a, a floppy drive. And one day, I was in the local computer store, and there among the really shabby packages was this one game package that – really stood out. It was this brown portfolio, a dossier for a game called Deadline. Uh, it was from Infocom, and the packaging was far beyond anything anyone else was doing, not only in computer games, but in publishing. It was this complete dossier full of actual evidence, photographs and letters and pills and little plastic baggies, plus the disc and instructions. This entire experience they were selling, and the game was very expensive. It was forty or fifty dollars, but I immediately bought it. And within a few hours of playing it, I realized I have to work at this company. This is what I want to be doing: is I want to work for this cool company because their parser, that is the the, the language understander, was quite a bit better than Scott Adams. Uh, still not very good, but much better. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, a. So, we had Scott on the show, and he was actually saying he used old um, baby formula plastic cases for his discs. So I have one of those. I have a, a, a copy of his original adventure, uh, Adventureland, in in the baby formula with the business card stapled to the top. It's still sealed. I haven't opened it. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> I, I could probably get a lot of money for that on eBay. Collectors who would like to get one, um, but I'm keeping it. <laughs> but around this time, I mean, you were, you were you mentioned that you were writing. I mean, you worked for Analog Magazine, that was you know a big magazine at the time. I mean, you must have seen a lot of games going across your desk at the time then. Oh, definitely. So I I, met, I left Bose after after getting the Atari and uh, and learning how to program it. I started to write for this uh, little magazine that happened to be nearby where I was living. Analog Computing. Analog was a terrible acronym. It, it stood for uh, Atari newsletter and lots of games, and uh, <laughs> it was it was a dreadful name. But anyway, they had this little newsletter they'd started. They had a store there too. In fact, that was the store where I bought my Atari, uh, and uh, and this little newsletter was starting to grow. And they had actually by the fourth issue, they had actually turned it into an actual magazine. And they asked me if I would contribute articles. So I started writing articles for it, and within a few months. They were growing so quickly that they needed help, and they asked me to come on board as a technical editor. So I left my fancy job at Bose Corporation, which was very well-paying and had wonderful prospects, and took a 50% pay cut to go work for my friends in Analog. It was the best career move I ever made. And, uh, and so I became technical editor, which means not only did I get to program, I got to review lots of games. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we got, you know, games came in every day and I would get to pick and choose who would review them. And I got all the good ones, of course. And I got all the Infocom games, too. Uh, so I got to review Starcross and many of the other classics as they were released. Uh, so that was fun. And I started writing games. Uh, I actually, uh, Analog was, uh, back in those days, it was common for computer magazines to publish code in the magazines. And you would type in the source code from the printed magazine. Yeah. And, and then run it on your machine, save it to your cassette, and then run it on your machine, hoping you had typed it correctly. <laughs> and so I, my first adventure games were actually published in the pages of Analog Computing. The first one was called uh, Adventure in the Fifth Dimension, 
which was written in a combination of basic and assembly, and it's it's kind of a manual of how not to write an adventure game. Uh, it's so wretched that I I've actually used this as an example in classes of, of bad practices. Uh, and the second one, which was totally in assembly, was called Crash Dive. That game is slightly better, uh, but then as a result. Partly of those two games, uh, Infocom, which was in Cambridge, which is not far from where I lived, uh, advertised a job opening for an engineer. And because I had written those games and knew something about assembly language, I got in. And that was my entry into my dream company was as a technician. That must have been such an exciting place to be around that time. Because, you know, you talk about the adventure genre, you know, even starting from classics like Zork. Infocom was a place to be in the early 80s, wasn't it? It was the, it was the most highly regarded game company in the world for, for a period. Uh, the quality of their product, not just the actual games, but the packaging, was unequaled by anybody. Uh, and their marketing was extremely hip. Uh, and uh, the people running the place are some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. They were all MIT graduates, many of them with doctorates in compiler design and stuff really sharp people, very deeply well-read people, too. They were avid readers. They were always reading the latest books and talking about them. Uh, and I was, I think I was employee number 40, I think, when they were still in their ascent phase in uh, 1983. Early 83 is when I joined them. Initially, as I said, as an engineer. Uh, but by the fall, they had asked me to become what they called an implementer, which was a game designer. I attended my first implementer's lunch in the fall of uh, 83, and this was, a, this was a weekly ritual they had. Every Tuesday at noon, they would set aside the large conference room and bring in lunch, and all the designers, the implementers, would get around and talk about their latest games. And I'll never forget my first one. I sat down, and there around the table are Mark Blank and Dave Loveling, two of the original authors of Zork. Uh, there's Steve Moretzky, who um, had written Planetfall, there's Stu Galley, who had just finished Sea Stalker and had done The Witness. And there was this other really tall British guy in the room sitting there, too, who I later found out was Douglas Adams, who was working on the Hitchhiker's Guide game with Steve. And so that was my introduction to Douglas, who I later became a pretty good friend with. Yeah, I bet you're a bit starstruck there. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was trying to be on my best behavior and not have my jaw open too often. Well, I remember that Hitchhiker's game. I mean, uh, you know, I remember playing that on, on the Commodore Amiga, and it was... So, you know, it was a hilarious game, but it was brutal as well, wasn't it? Very hard. It's a very difficult, unfair game, partly deliberately. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at one point, the game actually actively lies to you, right? So um, it, it is not one of their easier games, but it is one of their best sellers. In fact, it's the biggest selling game they had, except for Zork 1. And I was fortunate because the next game to come out after Hitchhikers was my first game, Wishbringer. Uh, and so the dealers all loved Infocom because they've been selling so many copies of Hitchhiker. So consequently, Witchbringer did very, very well. It was actually a solid hit. And it's a very good career move to have your first game be a hit. What was the uh, development of that game like? Uh, it took nine solid months of 80-hour weeks. Uh, I had to learn their development system. They developed their games on, uh, you know, most other game, nearly all of the game companies were developing their games on the target machines. Like if you were writing... For an Apple, you were developing on an Apple. If you were writing for an Atari, you were developing on an Atari. Uh, but Infocom had this virtual machine technology that very few other companies were using. I think Microsoft might have been the only other company. And we wrote our games on a top 20 mainframe that cost a million dollars. And uh, we had it down in this refrigerated room, and it looked like this 
wall of red refrigerators. Uh, and we literally had more computing power in that room than most third world countries. Wow. <laughs> and, all, and, and all of that power was for making text adventures. Uh, so we're all, we're, everyone in the company was networked into this mainframe, and we all worked on a networked mainframe. This is in the early 80s. This is very advanced stuff. You could all share files and projects and collaboratively kind of work. Right. It may have had a crude form of email. We could message each other. And, uh, you know, it was very advanced at the time. And so the games were written in a Lisp dialect uh, called um, uh, ZIL, which stood for Zork Implementation Language. Uh, and so first I had to learn this dialect of Lisp, which is challenging if you're not used to Lisp, and then uh, then write this game. So it was a, it was quite a difficult learning experience. But at the end of it, it came out really, really well and sold really well, and uh, I, I had kind of mastered the language, and uh, I was very pleased with myself. So, uh, And uh, it was a great beginning. <laughs> I heard there used to be some pretty wild office parties at Infocom as well. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, back th- That was back in the days before the lawyers had taken over all the American companies, and so, and so drinking was uh, very popular. Uh, we had a an office party every Friday, uh, and usually once a month we'd have a larger than usual office party, and these all involved large amounts of alcohol. And then on the holidays we would have really big parties, uh, and these would involve uh, truly epic amounts of alcohol and, and various states of undress and and goings on. Um, they were quite wild. It was uh, you know everybody was in their twenties. Most of us most of us were unmarried, all young. You know uh, it was a it was a great time. Well, you know, around that time, obviously, uh, you mentioned like the lawyers coming in and everything like that. I mean, was that kind of the downfall of Infocom, do you think, then, when that happened? You know, the downfall of Infocom has been told many different ways. The short version is that, that the owners of the company – so back, so what used to happen in those days, and still does happen, is that, a smart, uh, is that an MIT professor will get together with a group of their smart students and form a company to do something, and then they'll, they'll all go off and become rich or something. And so that's what happened with Infocom. It was started by a, one of the professors and a group of students who were working in the, uh, in the, uh, in the defense group, and they took this Lisp, uh, this Lisp dialect they had created called Muddle, MDL, and they wanted to use it to make products. At first, they weren't sure what products to make with it, and because they had made Zork with it, they said, well, why don't we start by selling that? So that quickly became kind of the core of the company, but but the owners always really wanted to be you know serious businessmen. You know, games were fine and they were making money, but they wanted to make big money. Uh, for example, uh, one of the people, one of the offices in the same building next to our was this little company called Lotus, uh, and the guy running that, Mitch Kapoor, suddenly became extremely wealthy when he came out with one two three, a mm-hmm. combined spreadsheet and database and word processor, and moved to a large skyscraper down the street. Cambridge. So, so the people at Infocom wanted to do that. They wanted to be, you know, make serious business software. So they went and and hired an entire, basically separate company full of people to make a database project using the same technology we used for the adventure games. And that immense growth, literally the doubling the size of the company, which included buying a second mainframe, another million dollar mainframe, and moving to much larger quarters. Um, this put a huge financial strain on the company because you know the games were making money, but all the profits were being poured into this database project, which was called Cornerstone. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Cornerstone was a very good product, but it came out a little too late. 
there was another company uh, called, making a product called DBase, which had gained market traction. And in order for Cornerstone to beat it, we would have had to spend several million dollars on marketing, which we did not have. So Cornerstone failed, and half the company had to disappear. And you know, and there were other market forces. For instance, graphics. By the middle and late 80s, machine graphics were beginning to get pretty good. And other companies were starting to make adventure games that used graphics, most particularly Sierra Online yeah. with their King's Quest series. And so text adventures began to fall out of favor with the public. And then, of course, Lucasfilm came out with Maniac Mansion as a competitor. And so this whole graphical thing started. And Infocom was still kind of doing text. And so they kind of went out of fashion. It did work out well for you because obviously you mentioned the uh, the change from text to graphic adventures and Lucasfilm. Um, Lucasfilm Games is where you went next. I mean, how did you get the job there then? I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because I got to work for not one but two of the classic legendary adventure game companies uh, at their and I and I worked at them at their peak, which was which is just amazing. So I have the best stories, but. Uh, what happened was I was um, I, w I had befriended a, a fellow who worked for Atari. I remember I worked for an Atari magazine, and one of the Atari gurus was a fellow named Chris Crawford. Uh, and I had I had met Chris at a computer fair in California, and uh, and he invited me to a, a gathering he was having at his home in April of 1988, just a gathering of some game developer friends, just to kind of talk about the industry. Uh, and this at this point, Infocom was really beginning to hurt. And so when I went to my boss and asked if they would fly me out to California for this gathering, they said, no, we can't afford it. So that made me a bit angry, but I decided to go anyway on my own dime. And so I flew out there and went to this gathering at Chris Crawford's house, which turned out to be the first of what is now the Game Developers Conference, this gigantic 25,000-person gathering in San Francisco. <laughs> that was the first one, wow. and I happened to be there. And... Uh, the day before the conference was uh, the West Coast Computer Fair, which was this well-established uh, conference in uh, San Francisco. It had been going since the 70s. Uh, and Chris was speaking there. And so I went to see Chris's talk the day before his little conference. I went to Chris's talk, and I got to his talk late. And uh, as I walked in, there was only one empty seat. It was right in the front row. Uh, so I went and grabbed the final seat uh, and watch Chris's lecture, and it turned out that I had sat down next to a fellow named Noah Falstein. Uh, and Noah was one of the designers at Lucasfilm. And he saw my badge, and I saw his badge, and we started talking. And then he asked me the strangest question I've ever been asked. He said, how would you like to work at Skywalker Ranch? You don't need to be asked twice normally, I imagine. <laughs> uh, right. I, I didn't have to think very hard. I said, tell me more. <laughs> Uh, so within a few months, I had a interview with them and a job offer, and I said goodbye to Infocom. Uh, very sad leaving there. I was the first of the game designers to jump ship, uh, but not the last. Several others quickly followed, but I was the first to leave, and uh, and I moved from the end of a text adventure era to Lucasfilm Games, just as they were beginning to really ramp up on their adventure game production. So they had already done Maniac Mansion. They had just published Zack McCracken, and they were beginning work on a game based on the the then about to be released film of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the third Indiana Jones movie, uh, not the horrible fourth one, the the third pretty good one, and uh, and that was Sean Connery. And uh, 
So they were working on that game, and they brought me in and said, basically, make whatever you want. Was it kind of a completely different atmosphere then working? Oh, completely, at completely. I mean, there's, I mean, there's no way to compare the two cultures. I mean, one, you know, Infocom the two version two, where they had moved, they had moved into this big new industrial skyscraper building that was extremely antiseptic, and you know, Infocom was a shirt and tie culture. I mean, we dressed in ties when we went to work, and the people who worked with the mainframe actually wore white lab coats. I mean, it was it was rather formal. It was a very New England company. So Lucasfilm Games was at Skywalker Ranch, which was which is probably the most luxurious place to work in the world. And it was Californian, which means if you've ever been there and you know, it means it was extremely laid back, very casual clothing, very casual everything. And you're here in this beautiful valley in Marin County, California, which is the wealthiest county in the United States and therefore perhaps the world. And uh, and you're there with George Lucas and a never-ending parade of celebrities. So have you got any memorable celebrity encounters? Oh, I mean, I could spend an hour dropping names here. So Skywalker Ranch is in a remote valley and deep out in the far reaches of Marin County. Very isolated. Most people don't even know where it is. It's not marked or anything. And uh, uh, whenever... Uh, rock bands would come and play the San Francisco area, they would typically stay at the ranch. The ranch had several buildings, and one of them was a beautiful guest house with four or five beautiful luxury apartments. And and a lot of rock stars would come and stay at the ranch while they were in the Bay Area on their tours because it was very isolated, and they would be left alone. And there was kind of a code of conduct at the ranch that it was understood you would not fawn over celebrities if you recognize somebody you would not approach them and ask for an autograph it'd be very cool and so you would get this like i said like a daily parade you never knew who you would be standing in the lunch line with by the way george lucas is always there he's a fair celebrity himself right yeah uh, and his girlfriend at the time linda ronstadt was hanging around all the time steven spielberg was there frequently uh many other film directors francis ford coppola uh, and then rock stars. I remember one day I was walking over to the uh, to the uh, Sprocket Systems, now called Skywalker Sound. It was their post-production facility. And I'm walking on the road between the buildings, and I see this family coming up on bicycles. And the uh, the the father of the family uh, is wearing little cut-off jeans and no shirt. And from the neck down, he looks like an athletic 18-year-old. And from the neck up, he looks kind of like a horse. <laughs> this, th- this turned out to be Roger Daltrey wow. of The Who. Uh, so, and I recognized him as he drove past. And he was there with his family. And I remember that The Who were playing the Oakland Coliseum that week. So, they, so clearly Roger was staying at the ranch. Later that day, I walked through the lunchroom and I saw a rather curious trio sitting at one of the tables. On one side was Roger. On the other side was Pete Townsend of The Who. And sitting between them in conversation was Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> what a combo. So, so you have to wonder, what does Mr. Spock have to say to the who? You'd love to be a fly <laughs> on the wall listening to that conversation. <laughs> I would love to know what it was. And they just glanced up and I just walked in and walked sat, sat down on my desk and said, that was one of the strangest sights I think I will ever see. You know, that and a total eclipse of the sun will probably be my two strangest things, right? Well, I imagine working in like, you know, such a creatively fueled environment and having all this going on around you must have really got your imagination flowing and probably helped a lot with your game development ideas. Absolutely. And, and the people were so creative and collaborative. And 
the setting was so luxurious. I mean, we were at the games group, which was only about 20 people at the time, was housed in what's called the stable house. And this was a beautiful rustic house with giant fireplaces with roaring logs in the winter. And, you know, the, the all of the premises were decorated with original art and artifacts from the Lucasfilm movies. So, for instance, just inside the door of the stable house, inside a glass cylinder, was the original puppet for Yoda. The Yoda. And hanging on the walls of my office were two of the original concept draw, draw, art drawings from Ralph McQuarrie, including the one of the two suns setting with Luke looking at them. Wow. I had the original painting on my wall. That was just crazy. Uh, yeah, crazy stuff like that. So, yeah, it was an intensely creative. I mean, you felt connected to creativity and fame. And, of course, we had access to the best post-production facility in the world right down uh, around the corner a bit, which is what I used to make the audio drama for Loom, right? Uh, so it was just – it was an amazing, an amazing place to work. Well, Brian, you, um, did, you did mention then, you know um, – the game that you know you're probably most known for and uh, you know we, we can kind of understand where this creativity was probably harnessed from but working on that loom which was you know that was your first game you did at lucasfilm wasn't it um yes. where did the concept of the game come from then and what was the development of that game like uh the concept came from the word i happened to be thumbing we had a bunch of computer magazines lying around everywhere uh and uh, i was thumbing through this unix this big glossy unix magazine I've tried to find the advertisement. I have not been able to locate it, but I came across this advertisement, a color ad for a, a, a math co-processing card that had a whole bunch of colored uh, wiring harnesses, everything very fancy. And then the advertising copy, they referred to this math co-processor as a loom. And when I saw that word, some kind of bell was rung deep in my head. So... I'm an English major. All my degrees are in English, and I'm fascinated by words. And the word loom just kind of hit me as a really ripe, pregnant, interesting word. So the word itself has many meanings. It means a loom is a thing you use to weave cloth, right? But looming is also something ominous hovering over you, something big about to happen, right? So it's kind of an anticipatory and kind of a slightly ominous feel. And it shares the sound of other ominous, like, dark words like womb and tomb and gloom, right? So it's this very rich, complicated word, and suddenly this entire universe, I mean, literally, instantaneously, this entire universe sprang up based on this word. The idea, oh, what if there was a magic loom that was run by people who were weavers, and they were magic weavers because they had a guild, and what if there were other guilds that also had their own kinds of magic based on their craft, and it all came out suddenly, and I just spent the afternoon writing it all down, and it was done. All I had to do was build it, and, uh, well, you know the result, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the development process like then? I mean, I imagine you put a lot of hours into that game. Uh, that was much harder than any, so I worked very hard on the Infocon games, but nothing could prepare me for the ordeal of because for the first time, I had a team. Uh, the Infocon games, we were basically working alone. I mean, we were the sole programmer, the sole author, and the main debugger. And in my case, I was also had a big hand in the package design in the Infocon games. I, I mean, we were really kind of a, authors there, uh, soloists. Not so at Lucasfilm Games. You can't make a graphic adventure by yourself unless you're extremely talented and have a great deal of time. Uh, so I had to have artists and sound people and music people working with me and learning 
to work with other people was a skill I needed to develop. Uh, luckily, they gave me some really good mature people to work with. Otherwise, it might have been a disaster. But uh, the amount of time I had to spend explaining what was needed uh, really shocked me. <laughs> I was just used to, you know, if I wanted to change something in the text adventure, I just changed it, right? And, and you could and you could greatly change the entire world by just a few strokes of the keyboard, right? You could have a tornado appear or disappear. It was just typing, right? But mm -hmm. if you wanted a tornado in for graphics, you had to describe it graphically in the kind of animation that was needed. And you had better not change your mind about wanting that tornado because otherwise somebody had just spent many dozens of hours making it for you and then you're going to throw it away. So, so I had to do something that I'd never had to do before. I had to plan the design kind of in advance, whereas the Impocon games were rather improvised. And that improvisory, improvisational style does not work when you have a team. Is it true that there was some inspiration from Sleeping Beauty? Oh, definitely. Uh, so when we started, we had the entire Lucasfilm library, which included, you know, vast videotape and, and uh, picture resources. And we were looking for inspiration, and we all agreed that the, that the film, the Disney, uh, the late 50s production of Sleeping Beauty, had a really unique look. Uh, it had been designed by kind of a maverick ar artist. His name was Ivan Durrell. Uh, who had a very distinctive style. Uh, his, that movie doesn't look like any other Disney movie. And we basically said, let's see if we can make our game look like that. So we had a bit of a challenge here because in those days we were working with EGA PC graphics. So EGA graphics, uh, the, the resolution was 320 by 200 pixels, and you were limited to a palette of 16 fixed colors. You couldn't choose the colors. There were exactly these 16 and no others. You had black and white, two or three shades of gray, and then a, a light and a dark shade of the primary and secondary colors. The uh, yellow had been tweaked a little bit to make it kind of like intestinal brown. Uh, and that was kind of it. We had to make the entire game with the palette. So it was rather challenging. And also there were no sound cards. Uh, so we could not assume you had a sound card, and we couldn't even assume you had a mouse uh, because Windows was not widespread yet, and everything had to ship on floppies because most people didn't have hard drives either. Yeah, you had to aim for the lowest common denominator, didn't you? Right, so, so Loom, Loom had to be this. Originally, my plan was to do a gestural magic interface, assuming a mouse, but when they told me I couldn't assume a mouse, I had to switch to an interface that could be done with the keyboard which is why I end up with, with the musical in interface because you could play the notes on the keyboard, right? And uh, the music you chose, the composer was Tchaikovsky, and that has a very kind of rapid and powerful style. Why did you choose him over other composers? Tchaikovsky was my introduction in high school to classical music. Uh, I got a cassette of highlights from the ballets, and, uh, and I always had a love for Swan Lake and, of course, Sleeping Beauty. The Disney movie was based on another Tchaikovsky ballet. Uh, so that was kind of a coincidence. But I always liked that music. And uh, I, I decided to restrict myself by saying I'm not going to do original music. I'm going to use the music from Swan Lake to inform the design. So the design actually incorporates many elements of the Swan Lake uh, fairy tale in it. it. It has swans, obviously, and the owls and, and many other elements. And, and Swan Lake also has a – It's uh, Tchaikovsky is a very melancholy composer. He was one of the great masters of melody. He's kind of the Paul McCartney of the 19th century. You know, just beautiful melody, but 
always with this melancholic tinge, and I wanted to get that into the game. Uh, so the game and the music were kind of conceived together. They really are tightly woven together. How did you get uh, George Fatman Sanger to do the conversion? That happened because we had hired a fellow named Dave Warhol uh, from a company called Real Time down in Los Angeles. And uh, George, uh, the fat man, was a contractor for uh, Dave. And so uh, when I decided to use Swan Lake, uh, we, we could not use very much of Swan. I mean, Swan Lake, complete ballet is two, over two and a half hours of music. I, I got to choose about 10 minutes of that <laughs> to use in the game. So, um, so I chose a, a, a few excerpts from it and got the uh, score, the orchestral score, and put it all together and sent it to Dave and said, we need this transcribed to MIDI. And he shipped it to George Sanger, who was based in Texas, who did the MIDI, the original MIDI transcription. And that's how I got to know George, and we have, we've had a lifetime uh, friendship ever since. Uh, so uh, George did the original MIDI transcription, and considering that he was working for a full orchestral score, uh, writing for four voices, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was rather a challenge he had there, but he pulled it off really, really well, I think. Yeah, hearing that come out the PC speaker, you know, that was quite a skill to get it sounding as good as it did. Right, so the PC didn't have an audio card by default. It did have a speaker, but in order to use the speaker, you had to basically stop all other processing <laughs> and, and push the speaker cone manually in and out at the correct frequency. Uh, so, so Lucasfilm developed a, an interrupt-based system that allowed them to play crude music and sound effects using the PC speaker. Uh, and and if you if you've seen my I did a post mortem back in 2015 I did a post mortem on Loom at the Game Developers Conference and I demonstrated what that horrible sound was like. Yeah, <laughs> not easy on the ears, is it? <laughs> no, it's it's very. I mean, there's no dynamic, there's no volume control. It's all at one dynamic range, and it's terribly shrill and horrible. Um, luckily, at the time, serious gamers were beginning to purchase sound cards. In particular, there was a card called the Ad Lib. Card, which cost, which was fairly expensive, it was like $150, but it gave a, a, a fairly simple FM synthesis capability to the PC. And so serious gamers were right, were were buying these ad lib boards, and Loom was written with the ad lib board in mind. We supported the PC speaker sound; we had to. But I actually wrote the game on the ad lib, and the ad lib version is kind of the definitive version. Well, speaking of, you know, working around technology limitations, I mean, you actually included an audio story with the game as well, didn't you? I mean, why did you decide to do this and how did that idea come about? Well, the idea for that was uh, pretty simple. I mean, I, we were, as I said, we're working at Skywalker Ranch. There are several buildings and one of them, which was designed to look like a, uh, an old winery. All the, all the buildings there had a story behind them. Uh, it was kind of like a Disneyland thing, and this was supposed to be a winery that had been converted into the world's most advanced post-production. So that was where the audio, where the soundtracks for for all the Lucasfilm and many other films were done in this spectacular post-production facility. And I walked in there and said, "Oh, I want to use this. This is my toy." Uh, and so when I when I wrote the story for Loom, I said, "Wouldn't it be nice since we don't have any sound?" I said, "Wouldn't it be nice if people could listen?" to an, a short audio introduction where people could actually hear the voices of the characters they were going to be playing, which, they, of course, they couldn't do when they were actually playing the game. But if they could hear what they sounded like, they would hear those voices when they played the game in their head, right? So I wrote a 30-minute audio drama, an introduction to the game, and, and it was published in the original version 
on an audio cassette that came in the game. Uh, this wasn't new. A couple of other games had done this, but no one had ever done it Lucasfilm style. Hmm. So we had, you know, so of course it was a fantasy. We had, so we had to hire all British actors because in America, uh, British voices are associated with high fantasy. It's the Tolkien thing, I think. Uh, there was a joke that we were going to do a British version that had American voices. But uh, anyway, uh, so uh, we had uh, an all-British cast, many of them BBC-trained, uh, to perform this audio drama. And we had a big uh, score, actually an original score, not was not Swan Lake. We had actually had original music written for the audio drama. And when you first, the original version of the game had this uh, cassette that came in the box, and you would listen, the idea was that you would listen first to the audio drama and then play the game. So uh, so that was kind of designed to introduce people to this rather complex world and, and who the main characters were and what they sounded like. So you be, the, the game begins where the audio drama ends. And that was a really interesting idea because, I mean, I first played Loom when I was a kid, but I got one of the budget releases that didn't include the audio drama. So I'd never heard that part of the story until, you know, I replayed it in the last, like, six months. But I actually listened to the audio drama first on YouTube and it does kind of, you know, explain the story a lot more and, you know, you understand where the game's starting from then. Right, right. That was the idea is that, it, you know, and of course, as you mentioned, they did later, you know, there were many, many reissues later. It was bundled. And sadly, often the audio drama was not included uh, in those bundles, including on, I think, the Steam, the version they're selling on Steam doesn't even have it. Uh, so, uh, but luckily, it's it's loose on the internet. You can get it everywhere. So, uh uh, so, so it's, uh, but yeah, originally that was the intent was for people to play the tape and then play the game. Well, uh, I remember playing Monkey Island and, you know, asking one of the pirates and he was saying, have you heard about Loom? Oh, I was, yes. I was Tell wondering how that. that happened. So he, yeah, so that's the famous ask me about Loom button. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I had to thank, actually thanked Ron Gilbert at the, at the postmortem at the Game Evolvers conference. He was in the audience. I thanked him because... That got me. That got my name into the Smithsonian Institute because the, the Smithsonian had a, a, a big uh, exhibition of video games. And one of the ones they chose was Monkey Island, and one of the first things you see if you play it is that scene where, which is basically an advertisement for Loom. So uh, I was grateful to Ron because my name is mentioned in there. But that was kind of a joke. So, so there was a friendly rivalry between various game groups, and and Loom Loom was actually not very popular inside Lucasfilm games. Because it was so different from all the other adventure games, it had a completely different interface. It was completely it was it was a serious game. It doesn't have any inside humor in it, uh, except for one Indiana Jones reference. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I mean, every game at one point somebody has to say the, the classic line. Uh, I have a very bad feeling about this. Yeah. Right? So you have, you have to include that in every game. So I, I do have Bob and say that once, but. But, you know, the other games, I mean, you know, Inside Humor is like one of the trademarks of Lucasfilm, right? If you played Ron's new game, Thimbleweed Park, it's basically nothing but a giant inside joke. Totally, right? yeah. <laughs> when the entire game is, is so self-referential, it practically turns inside out, right? Uh, and uh, and he's still making fun of Sierra. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah right? I've been playing so, I mean, it recently. I, it's amazing. I, I mean, I mean, I was, it's, it's, but that was part of the thing of, of Lucasfilm was they were very much the self-referential humor, and I didn't want that in Loom uh, because I felt, you know, as fun as that is, I felt that to do that kind of pulls people out of the story into kind of a meta place where they're playing a game and not being in the story, and also the interface of Loom is designed to make it so that as you act, Bobbin plays with you. So there's a very 
very close relationship between what the player is doing and Bobbin does it at the same time. So as you play the music notes, you see Bobbin playing them in synchronization with you. So that was an attempt to really bind the player to Bobbin and really draw you into the world. Whereas in the other games, it was basically an Infocom interface done with graphics. You would choose a verb and then choose a noun and maybe an indirect noun. But it was basically a graphicalized version of a text adventure, right? That's what it was. And so, and so that was not what the people in the game were, ever, were never doing that. They were never selecting verbs and nouns. They were executing the ones you had executed in your meta gaming space, right? So I was trying to avoid – I was trying to break down that barrier, right? Uh, so that's why the interface of Loom is so unusual because it's designed to be immediate. You, you are playing and Bobbin plays at the same time, and you're Bobbin, literally doing the same thing he does, or he's doing the same thing you do. So the game was unusual. Uh, it sold okay. It wasn't a particularly big hit, but the truth is that none of the Lucasfilm games were that popular in America. So even Monkey Island, which is rightly revered as one of the great classics, only sold like thirty or 35,000 copies in America. Oh, wow. where, it sold, where, where it sold really well is in Germany. Germany has always been Lucasfilm's best customer. They love graphic adventure games. They still do over there. And uh, they were a huge customer for our games. But you know, most of the LucasArts adventures, although they're great classics, actually were not very big sellers. Uh, is it a bit of trivia? People don't realize the best selling of all the Lucasfilm adventures was The Dig. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, but it's true. Yeah. So, uh, so even though these games have this great reputation, they weren't actually very big sellers compared to the other stuff selling at the time. It was kind of a niche. Well, I, I've heard lots of rumors over the years, and it'd be nice to kind of, you know, um, find out the truth on this. I mean, what was um, what was the deal with kind of Loom being planned as a trilogy then? Were there other games in your mind at the time, or was it just meant to be a standalone? No, it, I had two other games in mind. I, had their t- I knew their titles, and I kind of had a uh, synopsis of their plots in mind as I wrote the game. Uh, if you play Loom, there are some pretty clear indications towards the end of uh, pointing at a sequel. Uh, and I had two sequels in mind. Uh, originally, they were called The Forge. The second one was going to be called The Forge. Uh, uh, just just Forge. And it was going to be about... Uh, so there are two two other characters that appear in Loom, kind of secondary characters. One is Rusty, uh, Rusty Nailbender, who's uh, with the Guild of Blacksmiths. He was the star of Forge. Uh, so at the end of Loom, uh, Chaos has taken over the Forge as kind of his Death Star. He's kind of flying it around. And it's, he's turned it into his flying headquarters, and uh, and he's enslaved the blacksmiths. And the second game was going to be Rusty kind of leading a rebel movement to reclaim the forge uh, from uh, chaos. Uh, and you were going to meet uh, – he was going to be the central character. You were going to meet some new guilds that you had not met in the previous game, and some of the other characters from the previous game would reappear, including Bobbin, who would appear only once as a swan. Kind of as an Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of thing, dispensing ghostly advice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and he would only appear as a swan. Uh, and then the third game was called The Fold. And that was based on another one of the characters, uh, the shepherdess, Fleece Firmflanks, uh, who, was, who, who joins with Rusty to finally bring down chaos. And, and the game climaxes in this giant battle where the swans, the weavers, come back as swans. 
to save the day. Literally, the cavalry comes in. Uh, and so that was the trilogy. That was the plan. But when I was finished with Loom, I was completely exhausted. Uh, it, had, it had been just this tremendous effort of like two straight years of basically living at the ranch and not seeing my wife very much and very difficult. And the last thing I wanted to think of was another Loom game. So I actually took a break and went moved over to the educational division for a while and worked on a game there based on George's new TV show, uh, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Uh, and actually, we built most of an adventure game, but it got canceled when the show got canceled. So, And there were, during that period, there were some half-hearted attempts to keep the trilogy going, but nobody really wanted to do it without me, and I didn't really want to do it. So it kind of fizzled out. I know there have been some like fan um, sequels made. Have you tried any of those? Oh, yes. I, I actually highlighted one of them. Uh, there's an Italian group that did a, uh, a, a very respectable uh, first section of, of Forge. Uh, they took a stab at uh, telling the story of Rusty, and uh, they got like the first half of the game completely finished. And it's, it's very well done. Uh, it's got a wonderful – it's fully voiced. Uh, it's got a beautiful soundtrack. It's got some lovely moments in it, a couple of really fine moments. Uh, I, I hope they finish it because they kind of leave you on a cliffhanger uh, kind of halfway through the story. But uh, there's been that wonderful fan uh, version. Uh, it's not the game I intended to make, but it's a really interesting take. Uh, it's an interesting direction. And it's cool to see people. It, it took them years to put it together. I don't know how they managed to do it, but it's, a, it's, it's virtually commercial quality. It's quite good. Have you got any plans to ever revisit Loom then and maybe make those other games yourself? Well, it's not up to me. Uh, the, you know, Lucasfilm some uh, two or three years ago was sold completely to Disney, and now Disney owns all of Lucasfilm, including all of the rights to all of the adventure games, including Loom. Those rights have been optioned a couple of times over the years, but no one who optioned the rights ever did anything with them. And right now, I don't know what the status of the licensing is. Uh, I, could, I know more than I'm telling you, but I'm saying as much as I can say. Uh, but I can tell you that right now I know of no plans to do anything with Loom or with sequels. No one has contacted me, and as far as I know, it's never going to happen. And it can't happen unless Disney says so. And that's all I can say. If they said so, would you be interested? Uh, if they would bring me in as creative director, yes. Uh, I, would, I would not want to do it as a um, consultant. I would want to be in charge like I was with Loom, uh, because I would make it weird the way Loom was weird. Except it wouldn't be weird the same way Loom was weird. It would be weird a new weird way. <laughs> so uh, I, I would not want to make a retro game if I did sequels. I would not want to make it retro. I would want to make a totally state-of-the-art game. If, if they did, a, if they, one possibility is that someone will try to, they have this new thing they do, which they, for some reason they call remastering, which is basically where they throw a new coat of paint over an old game. So uh, uh, Double Fine has done this with Grim Fandango and uh, Day of the Tentacle. Yeah, Monkey Island. And yes, and Monkey Island, uh, yeah. uh, who did it? It was uh, Telltale did it with uh, Monkey Island, right? And Double Fine has done it with some of the others. Uh, if they did that with Loom, I would want – the only thing I would want to change aside from maybe cutting a bit of the dialogue, which is a bit verbose – uh, in places. The only thing I would want to change is, this, is the soundtrack. I would want to fully voice the game. 
Other than that, I wouldn't want to change the graphics at all. I want to leave it in 16 color VGA because that's correct. That's how the game was designed, and I don't think that should change. Well, I remember that VGA update in the 90s, and that yeah didn't have the same feel as the original. Not at all. And there were actually so there there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, when you when you're facing a creative limitation like the 16 color palette, it forces you to solve problems in unique ways. And I was very fortunate in having a very really a genius artist. His name is Mark Ferrari, uh, and and Mark came up with a a method uh, of producing the effect of more than 16 colors on the screen. In fact, Mark was the background artist for Thimbleweed Park, uh, Ron's new game. Uh, if you look at the sky, so all Thimbleweed Park takes place in Loom Twilight. It's always twilight, and it looks like Loom. And that's not an accident because the guy who made Loom, those skies, right, it looks just like Loom. And he came up with a very distinctive style, and when it was converted to 256 colors, some of the magic was lost. Uh, partly because the artists who were doing the conversion were new to it and had different approaches, and they had like four different artists working on it, each with a different approach, so the approaches don't always match. And also because we use the limitations in a very conscious way, and when you just start adding colors for the sake of adding colors, some of the effects get spoiled. Uh, I've got specific examples like I point to in my post-mortem. I say, here's a screen that works in the 16 color version and does not work in the 256 color version because there are too many colors. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. So I wouldn't want to redo the graphics, I, but I would want to do a completely modern soundtrack. That's the thing where I think the game really loses. And I might want to do a prologue of the audio, of the audio drama. That is, do a visual representation of the audio drama. Basically, a half-hour cutscene. Yeah, you could do like a, an actual yeah, movie, pretty much mini-movie. Yeah, yeah. I, would make, I would make a movie, but in, in the original 16-color limited palette thing, we would make, if we had had the disk space to do it and the time, I would want to make it look like that. But for sequels, I would not want to be retro at all. I would go absolutely state-of-the-art 3D, you know, spectacle well after that we didn't see adventure games for quite a while but now thimbleweed park seems to come back and it's doing really well in the uh and steam charts it's fantastic yes it is and uh and many other people are doing i mean the, you know the point and click adventures are back my friend dave gilbert and his company wajadai down in new york they have a very nice little business going making classic low resolution low tech point and click adventure games there's something to be said for limitations uh, it's just when you have no limits in budget or, or graphics, you can just, you know, you can end up making a movie and that's, you would better sell a lot of copies if you're going to go there. Right. Uh, but, uh, but Thimbleweed, no, I don't know what his budget was in Thimbleweed, but I don't think it was really huge, but you know, Ron is a master at this thing and Thimbleweed is a perfect Ron Gilbert adventure game. If, if that's what you like, that's the game to play. Well, I think you know, and anyone that loved the LucasArts games back in the day, you know, Loom, Monkey Island, they should play this game. It's like I've it's, been stuck in it for the past three days. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so good, and it's so, so. I do have complaints about a couple of the puzzles. I'm a little disappointed with Ron. A couple of the puzzles are not up to snuff for him, uh, but in general, it's it's almost a textbook of the right way to make a mm -hmm. game like that. It's it's very well constructed and everything. I, I have quibbles with a couple of the puzzles. You know, nothing's perfect, but uh, but it's a it's a very nice game. Just find, finding the dime 
was hard for me, but that's about it. <laughs> no, I didn't have any trouble with that. Uh, if for me, the I don't know, I don't want to give anything away. Is the the stairway in the library? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that the the solution to that puzzle is um, I'm going to scold Ron the next time I see him uh, for the solution. <laughs> that that can't be that simple. <laughs> that's 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 I'm going to scold him on that. And there's another puzzle where there's something very illogical that happened that doesn't. I th- he slipped in a couple of places. It's okay. He's allowed to slip. He's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Brian, but in general, it's a lot of fun. Well, Brian, we could talk to you all day. I mean, it's been fascinating talking to you. you know, there's a couple of guys who grew up playing your, your amazing games. We just want to thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us this week on the show. Thank you very much. It's fun to reminisce about the good old days. And if you ever do plan on updating Loom, I do let us know. Oh, I'm, I doubt that you will not hear about it. That happens. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much, Jim, Brian. Thanks for having Cheers. me. Cheers.